Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. If you've been here over the last, uh, man, I guess it's been close to a year now, we have sort of had a front row seat to the, the slow, steady dissolution of the nation of Israel as we've watched everything coming unraveled at the seams. And really, what we've seen in First and Second Kings is just the continuation of a much bigger story. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning, when God rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt and freed them from slavery, what, what was Israel's attitude almost immediately toward God? It's like right away they began to grumble against God, right? They didn't like the food they had. They didn't like the, uh, the circumstances they were in. They didn't understand why Moses got to be the leader. They didn't understand why Aaron got to be the priest. I mean, it's like as soon as God gave them the Ten Commandments, the second commandment being you're not allowed to have images, it's like as soon as God gave that, you find them in, in Exodus making an image, making a golden calf that they're going to use to worship God. So it's like from the very beginning of the story, we see very clearly that the nation of Israel's hearts are drawn toward idols. From the very beginning, we see that their hearts are prone to be hardened toward God. And First and Second Kings are just showing us how that impulse toward idolatry and that impulse toward rebellion continued in the days of the monarchy. You'll remember that Israel was convinced that if they could get a king, all of their problems would go away. If God would just let them have a king like the other nations, everything would be good. And so God gave them a king. And did that solve their problems? No, all of their problems were the same. Now they just had the additional problems of having a king on top of it. In fact, things were so bad that the nation of Israel ended up rebelling and splitting into two different empires. And while both kingdoms were bad, the northern kingdom took the fast track toward uh, complete disaster. From the very beginning, they formed a, an idolatrous, twisted religion. They managed, the northern kingdom managed to go their whole existence and never had a good godly king. And because of that, we just saw a few chapters ago, in 722 BC, they finally fell. The Assyrians came in, the northern kingdom was conquered, and really from that point forward, goes out of existence. The tribes, the ten tribes that had organized that kingdom, most of them were hauled away, taken off into exile, and, and never returned. So it was, it was done away with. And so all of our attention now has turned to the southern kingdom of Judah. And while Judah was smaller, there were only two tribes in this kingdom, not ten. It's much smaller, it's much weaker, it doesn't have nearly the army that the northern kingdom has, yet Judah manages to hang on for a, more than a century longer than the northern kingdom. And the reason for that is, is God's grace. And mainly, God showed his grace by giving Judah a handful of good kings. So the northern kingdom has only bad kings. But the southern kingdom, God raises up a couple of good godly men. And those good godly men manage to make course corrections. They'll reform the religion. They'll turn the people back to God. And because of that, they slow this fall into destruction. And last week, we started looking at one of those good kings. And it's a man named Hezekiah. We, we just kind of touched the surface of Hezekiah last week. There's like three chapters in uh, Second Kings that are devoted to Hezekiah, even more in Chronicles that's devoted to Hezekiah. And a couple things that, that stand out about him. Uh, one, we saw last week, that he's the son of King Ahaz. Ahaz was arguably the most evil king ever to sit on the throne of Judah. 
he engaged in the most gross forms of idolatry. Ahaz offered child sacrifices. Ahaz tried to ruin the worship in the temple, and he brought idols into Israel. So horrible man, and yet his son is this godly king. It's a good reminder that uh, godliness doesn't run into genes, right? It's not something we inherit. It's, it's God's grace that does this. And so Hezekiah is a king who genuinely knows the Lord. And maybe the most glowing thing that's said about Hezekiah is that he is a king like David. That, that shines in First and Second Kings because over and over again, David is held up as the, the standard that every other king is compared against. And time after time, we see kings that don't live up to the standard of David. But all of a sudden with Hezekiah, we're told, here's a king like David. And maybe the thing that stands out most about Hezekiah Listen to 2 Kings 18, verse 5. It says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. That, that is an unbelievable thing to have said about you. He trusted in the Lord. Let's see if I can get my pen to work. He trusted in the Lord like none of the kings who came after him or none of the kings who were before him, meaning that here is a king of real, deep, resolute faith. And how did Hezekiah's faith show itself? Well, we're told in the passage that, that he was committed to obeying God's law. That's the positive side of it. And then the negative side of it is this was a king who was determined to get rid of every vestige of idolatry in Israel. So he is removing every idolatrous pole, the Asherah poles he's cutting down, the, the bronze serpent that they had kept hold of since the days of Moses that they were using as an idol. He cr crushed the smithereens. I mean, he got rid of everything, even the high places, the little localized shrines where they would have their own personal, private, self-focused worship of Yahweh. He tore all of that stuff down. So. Hezekiah wasn't just a man of faith, he was a man of courageous faith. He's willing to take hard measures and do hard things in order, to, in order to honor the Lord. But I made the point last week, and this is important in understanding Hezekiah, even the strongest of faiths has weak points. Even the strongest of faiths has low points. And that's what we'll see really a, a, two of the next three chapters that will shine in the life of Hezekiah. I've, I've been having several regular, I guess, conversations with uh, Ty over the last three or four weeks. He is, at Mercer, you're required to take a religion course. And you can imagine a religion course at a school that is largely now a secular school. He's, he's in a Bible class about the Old Testament with a teacher who has tremendous disdain for the Bible. And so we're, he's trying to figure out when to talk and, and anyway. But one of the classes last week, this teacher went on a long rant about how misogynistic the Bible is. Because in the Bible, all the heroes in the Bible are males. And there are no female heroes in the Bible. And so it's hard for a female to find her place in the Bible. And it's hard for a woman to read the Bible and find herself in the Bible. And there's lots of things you could say about that. But... One of the main things I would want to say to that lady is she's completely misreading the Bible because the point of the Bible it isn't that we need to find male and female heroes. The point of the Bible is there's only one hero and it's no man and it's no woman. The only hero in the Bible is God. That's why the Bible goes to such extents 
for every man and every woman just about who's highlighted as some heroic person, the Bible goes to great lengths to show us how flawed they all are. Probably the greatest hero of the Old Testament is David, right? This man after God's own heart, and we don't have to rehash all the things David did, the horrible sins he committed that messed up the nation and unraveled his family. Okay, so, so to, to think about these heroes in the Bible as if we should see them and there's going to be no flaws is going to be to misread them. Hezekiah is a man of faith. That's the summary of his life. But there's still going to be some failures in Hezekiah's life. Now, here's where we left off last week with Hezekiah. Um, when he comes to the throne, the Assyrian Empire, Assyria is the dominant superpower in this day. And when he comes to the throne, Assyria is, is going through a kind of unsettled period. There's a, a leadership transition. Every nation in this area, just about, has either been conquered by Assyria or they have surrendered to Assyria. They've become a vassal state where they every year have to pay money and they're under the thumb of, of Assyria. Assyria gets to call the shots. So that's every nation in this area. Well, when, when this leadership transition happens, a king named Sennacherib, he'll, he'll show up in our text, comes to the throne. And when that transition happens, nations all around the Assyrian Empire rebel. And so Sennacherib has to spend most of his time focusing on the rebellions in the north. And so what that allows is Judah and the other little nations around Judah decide that they're going to form an alliance and they're going to rebel too. They're going to stop paying tribute. They're not going to live under Assyria's authority anymore. They're going to start doing their own thing their own way. So it seems like they might be on the brink of getting their freedom back. In addition to that, they also form an alliance with Egypt. E Egypt was kind of like the big bad brother to the south. And so the thought is, if they can get Egypt on their side, if Assyria does ever decide to march south and get them back in line, Egypt can come up, and Egypt has the manpower to fight off Assyria. Okay, so they form a coalition, they get Egypt to sign on to this coalition, and they think they're secure. Now just as a quick side point, um, the, the ministry of the prophet Isaiah is happening at this same time. Okay, so this is when Isaiah's ministry is playing out. And Isaiah sees them making this coalition with, with Egypt. And Isaiah sees it as a problem. And so there are several chapters in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah addresses them relying on Egypt. Listen to a few of these verses. Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. The next chapter, he continues this, Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they're very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. So Isaiah sees all of this going on, and he knows that there are people around Hezekiah who are trusting in Egypt. They think their problems are solved because they have Egypt on their side. Okay, so for a while, it looks like everything's going to be okay then the story changes. If your Bible's open to 2 Kings, we'll pick up in verse 13. We covered the first 12 verses last week. Picking up in verse 13 says, And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I'll pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Do you see what happens? So once, once the king of Assyria gets everything under control to the north, he decides he's now going to get all these nations back under control to the south. So the Assyrian army sweeps down. What they do first is they come to the, here's Judah, they come to the west and then south of Judah, and they just crush every nation that's standing in their way. They just run roughshod over every nation. And just like they promised, Egypt did indeed come up to fight Assyria and got absolutely shellacked. So Egypt came up to fight, and then they had to turn around and run back home. And so all the nations that had been in this alliance with Judah crumbled. And so just like that, Judah found themselves all alone. So all these other nations and all these other great empires that Hezekiah had put any trust in evaporated. And, and Assyria then turned and began marching toward Jerusalem. And the way it would work in these ancient kingdoms is there would, you would have different fortified cities throughout your kingdom. So if an, an invading army came in, they would run into these different fortified cities before they could get to the capital. Well, when Assyria comes in, all of the fortified cities in Judah start falling like dominoes. They're all collapsing until the only one left is Jerusalem. And it's at that point that Hezekiah, this man of great faith, his faith begins to wobble a little bit. Now initially, Hezekiah had been resolute that if they trusted in the Lord, the Lord would get them out of this. Here's what he says just before all of this. This is in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 32, says, Then he set military captains, this is as Assyria is coming their way, he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that's with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I mean, that's impressive. Initially, as Assyria crushes all these other enemies and starts marching their way, Hezekiah encourages the people, trust God. They have the arm of flesh. We have the Lord our God on our side, and God will be with us. But you might have noticed that his attitude changed when they got to Lachish. Lachish was the second largest city in Judah, second only to Jerusalem. And it was only 40 miles away from Jerusalem. So once the Assyrian army got to Lachish and conquered Lachish, it was clear sailing from there to Jerusalem. So Hezekiah now realizes there's nothing standing in the way of us and the Assyrian army, and he begins to panic. And he sends message to the king of Assyria and says, we just want peace. Tell us what we need to do. 
tell us what we need to pay you and we'll pay it. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, gives them a price point. And it is a ridiculously high price point. It's an enormous amount of silver and gold that he's going to require them to give. Well, the problem is Judah's a tiny little empire. They're not wealthy. So where is Hezekiah going to find all of this silver and gold? The same place that all of these kings keep finding silver and gold. He goes in and he ransacks their own temple. Right? You see these kings doing this over and over again when they get into trouble. He even gives the picture that he sends men in because they've, they've gold-plated the pillars of the temple and they've gold-plated the doors of the temple and he sends men in to scrape the gold plating off the pillars and to scrape the gold plating off the doors and they empty the silver out of the offering boxes and they send every penny they have to try to satiate Sennacherib. This is not a good day for Hezekiah. Lots of kings do this but every time this is mentioned in the Old Testament, it is always pictured in a very bad light. This is a sign that they're not trusting in the Lord, that their fate has become sketchy. Now again, if, how can Hezekiah in verse 5 of chapter 18 be described as a king who has faith like no other king who went before or after him? How can it say that in verse 5, and yet here we come to verse 16, and Hezekiah's fate seems to be crumbling? How can that happen? And he's a man. Yeah, this is, this is the, the Bible verse, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? That we, I mentioned last week, we never reach a point where we have this faith thing figured out, where it's licked. Where I'm, I've got enough faith now, I'm, I guess I'm good from here on out. Right, we're, we're still people with clay feet, and there are going to be struggles, and so we have a king who is known for his faith, whose faith here begins to get a little, a little wobbly. Are there any other examples of this sort of thing in the Bible? This is over and over in the Bible, right? Maybe the prototypical example is Peter, right? You could argue as you read the Gospels that no apostle in the Gospels shows the sort of courageous faith that Peter shows. When, when they see uh, Jesus walking on the water, they don't all volunteer to walk out to Jesus. Only Peter does. When Jesus starts asking the, the apostles who everybody thinks he is, who's the one who finally vocalizes it and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? It's Peter who steps up and says that. And of course, when Jesus was arrested that night, Peter was, was ready to lay his life down. He draws his sword to fight for Jesus. And it's stunning that just a few hours after that, as Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin, just hours later, this little servant girl begins asking him questions about being with Jesus. And what does Peter do? He denies even knowing Jesus. His faith completely crumbles. Okay, so you get, you get lots of pictures of that in the Bible. Even, even the most courageous of faiths can have moments where it acts cowardly. Okay, that's the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, and by the way, the thing that most often causes faith to collapse is fear. Fear of death or fear of people or fear of loss or fear of whatever can be the greatest enemy to faith. And it is fear right here that is driving Hezekiah to turn away from the Lord. So maybe here's an important point to make. Um, the, the ultimate mark of authentic faith isn't that it never wobbles. The ultimate mark of authentic faith is not that it never stumbles. The mark of authentic faith is what happens after that. 
right? Because uh, both Judas and Peter denied Jesus right there at the end. So what makes us think that Peter was a genuine believer but Judas wasn't? Well, what makes us think that is because of what happened afterward. Peter was broken over his sin and he mourned over his sin and he turned back to God. So, so the ultimate mark of, of genuine faith is there is a resiliency to it. It endures. And the reason it endures is because God makes sure that it endures. This is, this is Paul in Philippians 1 saying, he who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a great story, um, Thomas Cranmer. Do y'all know the name Thomas Cranmer? Cranmer was one of the one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in England back in the 16th century. He, he was pivotal in the Church of England. This is all during the reign of King Henry VIII. Um, and, and he is pivotal in turning the Church of England away, or turning England away from Roman Catholicism toward Protestantism, toward belief in justification by faith and Scripture alone being our guide for faith and practice. So he's pivotal in this whole movement, and it's a hard movement, of turning the religion and the doctrine of the country. And then Henry VIII died. And when Henry VIII died, after intrigue, uh, Mary, his daughter, became king. And Mary was a devout Roman Catholic. In fact, she was determined to reverse everything that had happened toward Protestantism in the previous years. And she was quite violent in trying to reverse it. So she would arrest Protestant leaders. And one of the men she arrested was Thomas Cranmer. And he endured extreme difficulty under Mary. He had to watch two of his friends burn at the stake because they wouldn't renounce their beliefs. Um, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake as he's having to watch them killed. And so under all this pressure, eventually, Thomas Cranmer's will broke. And he, he signed a paper recanting his beliefs, saying that he had been wrong, that he, he didn't believe that anymore. Well, the, the leadership decided that they didn't just want a private signing of a recantation they wanted to use him as a public example so they set up a date when they were going to have him stand up in Oxford and announce to the crowd that he had turned away from his beliefs and that he was going back to Roman Catholicism and so the day came and he stood up in front of the crowd and to the shock of all of the leaders there he did the opposite and he repented of recanting and he said that while his hand had signed that document his heart didn't believe it and that he did genuinely believe all the things he had been teaching for the last years. In fact, he said that because his hand had signed that document, when they burned him at the stake, he was going to make sure that his hand was the first thing to burn. And they pulled him down off the pulpit and they tied him to a stake right where he had watched those two friends be burned and they lit the fire around him and as the fire began to grow, he held out his right hand in the fire so that that hand that signed the recantation would be the first part of his body to burn. And he ended up burning at the stake, giving his life. This man who, whose fate had wobbled there under pressure in prison was restored, right? There can be wobbles sometimes. And that's, that's what we end up seeing here with Hezekiah.